Waves in the Finiverse. You assume that innovation comes from the top and then works its way down. Uh, Web3, it's very much the opposite. They're kind of just going, no, we just need an internet connection and we can take part in this, this sort of great tech revolution. We're not reinventing the wheel, we're just creating a better wheel for the people who want to build wheels themselves. Can I be arrested for just writing some code? Climate solutions coming out of this space have been mind-blowing in terms of the, like the sophistication and the thought that's gone behind them. Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse. I'm Walter Jennings, the host of a podcast brought to you by Finiverse. We're talking with the wave makers that are creating ripples, waves, and tsunamis across finance, crypto, fintech, Web3, and beyond. Listen weekly to hear the change makers talk firsthand about their experiences in this dynamic industry. Can you get arrested for writing code? Will your money one day expire? And can Web3 fix Facebook? These are some of the questions that our next guest will answer. Joining us is Matt Hussey, Editorial Director of NEAR Foundation. This is Waves in the Finiverse, and I am your host, Walter Jennings. It takes 15 seconds to build your smart contract on NEAR. This is a whole new model. If you could introduce the concept of decentralized autonomous organizations and how they operate on NEAR. Exactly that. Yeah. So, so a DAO or a decentralized autonomous organization sounds horribly complicated, but it's essentially it's a set of rules by which a group of people sort of work and live by. And those rules can be used from anything from, you know, a social club to, you know, how do we manage a treasury to how do we vote on what a team of people do together. Um, and how near kind of helps that is um, making it incredibly simple so you can you can start a DAO in as long as it takes to start your email address you know we give you click and play functionality so how many people do you want in your DAO what sort of voting rights do you want do they have to have a NFT to sign their votes all that kind of stuff so we sort of suck all the code out of it and make it as simple as possible to do for anybody what kind of uh, applications are you seeing are most popular for these uh, new type of governance companies? So we're seeing a lot of sort of social enterprise projects spinning out. In particular, like how does that social enterprise spend its money? So lots of people want, especially in the kind of Web3 space more broadly, want to be able to take part in how something's run and the decisions that get made. And so lots of DAOs are being sp sort of spun up to allow people to vote on different issues, to propose votes. And so we're seeing a lot of those sorts of things, a lot of things around how do you manage money and what direction does a company go in seems to be the two most popular approaches. NIR has a, quite a large community and what are the innovations you're seeing being driven by that community? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where in, in uh, yeah, my background in, in journalism, you, you assume that innovation comes from the top and then works its way down. Uh, Web3, it's very much the opposite. We've seen the community come up with ways of, you know, disrupting everything from like carbon credit industry about how to sort of like measure and capture carbon in rainforests to uh, how do you run a charity to how do you build a kind of gaming ecosystem so we've you know we're, we're all in the grips of the gaming world at the moment but these com these communities are building completely new ways of working with game developers working with artists and designers and sort of 
creating this sort of overlap that is happening completely organically, whereas historically you, you would have assumed a kind of centralized company would then hire those people to perform a certain role. The community are kind of drawing people together themselves and kind of saying, hey, this is my favorite artist. I want him to take part in designing characters in this game and then for that to then lead to this community. The community have become this fascinating kind of glue to put things together that traditionally kind of, you know, a pure centralized company might not have come up with themselves. And can you give me examples of real world innovations that we might notice that have occurred in Web3? That's a good question. So obviously the, the big one uh, is NFTs. So this is this is the idea of how do you make something on the internet scarce? So we've come from a world where the internet allowed you to copy things infinitely. Um, what the community, you know, the, the broad Web3 community and, and Nia's played a role in that has done is gone, okay, how can you make something that lives on the internet and lives nowhere else be scarce? And yeah, we can get into conversation about a, uh, you know, is code law and things like that. But I think the biggest innovation is is the idea that you can make something one of a kind in a world where that doesn't really exist. And I think also the second one would be sort of programmable money, which is another big topic of conversation. It's the idea that you can make money behave in certain ways and you can make money be used to incentivize certain behaviors um, and be rewarded in a kind of non-monetarily way and capture value for things that historically haven't had monetary value. I'm going to come back to programmable money because yeah. I'm a big fan of CBDC and yeah. um, uh, also the concept of private money soon. Yeah. But we were talking momentarily about NFTs and uh, or non-fungible tokens. I, I assume most many uh, non-Web3 listeners would hear NFT and think, uh, you know, a piece of art that jiggles. Uh, yet there are thousands more applications. Can you... Uh, unpack NFTs for us. Absolutely. So, so uh, uh, simplest, NFTs are essentially a way of creating a single line of code that represents a thing. Now, that sounds horribly abstract and not very interesting. But what it allows you to do is it allows you to create keys to things. So that might be the better way of thinking about it. So what we've seen in the world currently are keys to imagery. So a, a JPEG, an avatar has, you know, is the most popular use case for an NFT, which is like, I have a key that says this picture is mine. That's my bored ape. Exactly, right? Um, but you can do all kinds of interesting things with it. So what we've seen at the moment is um, we've seen lots of kind of the creative industries pick these up. So you've got like musicians using them to represent music and sounds. That, that, that that's then leading to really interesting things about remix culture. So we're seeing musicians at the moment, um, like NFT, like component parts of their songs, allowing people to buy them, own them, mix them, and then reassemble them into different ways. And that then ties into sort of royalty, the royalty world, which is, you know, in the current world, it's very hard to track royalties. And, you know, if you're the original creator of something, you have some very good lawyers and a lot of money to go and chase people if they copy your work, right? Whereas in the in the Web3 world, we're seeing musicians and artists use this sort of smart contract code, this called key, uh, to trace where something goes. So what we're seeing is this sort of remix culture that says, hey, I've borrowed 10 seconds of your song for my song. Every time my song gets bought or sold, in the contract, it'll be re your 10 seconds re represented as a fraction of that payment. So you'll just get paid every time someone buys that song in perpetuity. Uh, so Matt, if you had one song or one artist that you could take with you in the uh, Finiverse, 
who would you be rocking to or relaxing to? That's, I'm going to be very, very biased and say one of my team uh, is a music producer, one of my writers, and he just released his first music NFT this week. So I'm going to say it's by, he's, he calls himself Northern Telecom, and it's his first song that he's produced on the Web3 world. So I'd say I would jam out and listen to that. Tracks in the Finiverse. You also have uh, announced a, a new online kingdom, Armored Kingdom, a multi-platform global entertainment universe founded by actress Mila Kunis and a superhero creator, Sharad Devarajan. How does it work? So it, it works in the, in the sort of, it brings different worlds together. It works from that. So if you think about the world of kind of comic books in their original format, they were just pieces of paper that were designed to tell a story. That brings that world into storytelling in the digital world, which is, you know, this can be a more immersive, this can be a more kind of tailored and customized. Communities can have more of an input into how stories are told. And then layered on top of that is the kind of world of Web3, which brings in ownership and brings in the idea that something is tradable and shareable and, and definable in, in ways that you know, a paper comic could never be. You know, if you imagine you take a paper comic from you know, the days of yore, if you were to cut out the, a picture of Superman of your comic, it's worthless, right? In the digital Web3 world, you could, you could make characters in your metaverse ownable and tradable and shareable, which means that people can get, have a much closer relationship with the storytelling that they love and the characters that they love in a way that has never really been done. So imagine you know, take the, sort of the, the Marvel universe as a kind of example. All the characters you see coming out of Hollywood at the moment they are characters that the IP is owned by a studio and then the studio makes a film and then you buy tickets to see the film. The audience is always kept at arm's length. Whereas what Armored Kingdom have kind of said is what if the audience wasn't kept at arm's length? What if the audience was part of it and could own bits of it and trade bits of it and use bits of it to create new worlds themselves? And so the Armored Kingdom really is the best thought of a kind of a, a sandbox whereby storytelling graphic art, comics, ownership, community have all been sort of dumped in together and they're going to be sort of sloshing around in all these weird and wonderful ways that in some ways that we don't really know what they'll do yet. And you've talked about user-generated content and we've seen in countries in the Philippines and Indonesia people making money through user-generated content. You know, that seems to me a little bit of the uh, the ultimate destination. How is near enabling and monetizing, helping people monetize their user-generated content? The Near Foundation, like many other foundations in Web3, has taken a very different approach to starting and building something. And, and what I mean by that is um, there's, there's less desire to kind of capture all the value and IP at the very top and more interesting in, in encouraging and incentivizing value and IP to be generated at the grassroots level. So user-generated content is a kind of version of that, whereby on the coding level, for example, you know, if you're a developer and you deploy a piece of code or a smart contract on Near, and let's say that that contract has a revenue, like a cost to you know, activate that smart contract, 
the developer can capture 30% of every all the value of every time that contract is used, right? Which is kind of, which you think about sort of, it's like YouTube deploying a bit of code and saying the guy who built it gets a slice of the action every time that, that YouTube is used, right? And that stretches all the way out to kind of the, the artist and creator level where we're seeing like versions of YouTube built on Web3 whereby, you know, the, the revenue split on places like YouTube is very much favors YouTube over the developer. The, developer, the creator rather gets a kind of slice of that. Whereas what Web3 is saying is, hey, here's a much bigger slice of the pie and here are these four or five other ways that you know, user-generated content can be monetized. You can create a fan base. So it's it's what's happening in the Web3 space is we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just creating a better wheel uh, for the people who want to build wheels themselves. I know that sounds quite strange, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's um, a way of empowering folks. Uh, it isn't always all good news. What are some of the frustrations and concerns you're hearing from the, the Web3 developers? Yeah, a lot, lot of frustrations. Developers are never happy. Um, but a lot of the frustrations come with ease of use. You know, we, we're at a kind of really early stage of this technology where it's still hard to use. It's hard to understand. Um, it can be very slow in places. Um, it can be hard to educate people because you know, the hurdle and barrier to entry for, developer, for for users can be quite high. So that's an issue. Regulation is a huge issue. Um, you know, if, you're, if you've seen in the news recently that the Tornado Cash developer was arrested um, because of the product that he'd built, and that sent a bit of a shockwave through the developer community where they're saying, can I be arrested for just writing some code? In fact, you came out with a statement, uh, Near Foundation came out with that on the belief in privacy. Um, yet that can be a two-edged sword if you're um, perhaps a malevolent actor. So there, are, not everyone has the best intentions at heart. So how do we balance the, the, the needs uh, of the many and the needs of the few? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there are a, a lot of discussions around it, about it. I think from the, from the foundation's perspective, the, the approach is you have to have a layer of transparency that complies with regulators so you need to have a kind of like a do we know roughly who the people are that moving around in this in this world that we've created but once you're sort of in that world can the people inside that world transact and and interact with each other without prying eyes so there's a technology that's buzzing around at the moment called zero knowledge proofs um, and this is the idea it's quite a highfalutin idea it's the idea that can two people um exchange and transact with each other in a way that allows each person to know just enough to verify the persons who they say they are without revealing too much so the person can be identifiable and this is the kind of very very big question at the moment so can you be compliant with regulators while preserving privacy is the big question and zero knowledge seems to be the kind of leading way to achieve that at the moment uh, yeah, the leading way. However, perhaps not the ultimate solution. Not the ultimate solution. So what we're seeing, as we like we're seeing in every world, is a kind of uh, scale of people taking different approaches. Some projects are being want to be very compliant with regulators. So exchanges, for example, that are based in you know, the US, projects like you know, Coinbase, for example. You know, they they see their future tied to the ability to get on with regulators. So they're not necessarily going to be pushing. You know, privacy solutions for users in 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 an in adversarial position to regulators. They want to be to play nice to regulators. So you have that on the one end, and then you have 
you know your tornado crashes and your blenders who you know the the spirit of what they've produ- what they've built is you know should someone be watching you while you're moving money around or exchanging money but the idea of yeah, you know, there are some use cases where privacy is really, really important. So, you know, um, Vitalik Buterin, uh, the founder of Ethereum, said that he had used Toledo Cash to send money to refugees in Ukraine, and he said he did that not to conceal his identity, but to conceal the identity of the recipients. So, you know, there are lots of reasons why privacy is important, but the 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 spectrum of privacy preserving tools is very much an open conversation. An oxymoron is when you put two concepts together that don't seem to fit like jumbo shrimp. Um, and now we're talking about regulated crypto. Um, it seems that the industry was born out of a desire to get away from regulation. And um, now we're coming back full circle. So uh, tell me about getting that balance right. Yeah, and it, it's such a crucial balance. So the, so the kind of history of crypto, like, like any kind of disruptive technology, is to kind of to resist or to undermine what came before, to disrupt it, essentially. And what came before crypto was a world where you know, money and the issuing of money and the definition of value was controlled broadly by states and international bodies that kind of controlled things like remittances and things like that. So crypto came along and said, hang on a minute, why do you get to say and define all of this? Why can't we have a say ourselves? And that has been, and that as an experiment has been unbelievably successful and has completely changed the conversation around value and money and who controls money. But then we've reached a bit of a crossroads and that crossroads is you can continue to be this sort of thorn in the side of the world's regulators uh, and you can sort of become sort of digital pirates and continue to sort of flee from port to port um eluding capture at all costs or you can sort of come in from the cold and say hey we want to be part of the conversation around regulation because we believe the dna of all this stuff is really really important to empower people to do things they couldn't do before so how do we do that um and i think so far most of the conversation has been around avoiding regulation but the conversation i think is changing and i think for the foundation we want to, you know, we're based in Switzerland. Um, we want to be part of the conversation about EU regulation, which has been a topic this year, um, to say, hey, we're not here to make your life difficult and to make it easy for criminals. We want to be on your side, but we don't want to erode all of the ideas that we've come up with, which is sort of self-determination around value and the idea of owning IP that doesn't sit in some third parties you know, server that can be hacked and exploited. We want to be able to say, hey, these ideas are valid, but how do we join the club so they can be on the, on your side rather than on the side of criminals and anyone else who wants to use it for nefarious means? Okay, I want to dive into a subject you brought up earlier, which was programmable money. Um, and uh, I know our listeners would have heard of CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, but I'm getting a sense there might be CBDC and programmable money, and they sometimes are the same, but many times they're different. So I know within a central bank digital currency, there's a lot of oversight, but uh, programmable money sounds to me like something slightly different. Can you explain? Of course. So the the, the typical kind of crypto answer is it is and it isn't. Um, So I'll, I'll give you an example. So arguably the kind of leader in CBDC and programmable money from a state level, is China, right? And so we all know what what China has done in the past. 
But what they've been doing in their kind of pilot schemes in cities and regions is doing interesting things like um, putting expiration dates on money. Why would you put an expiration date on money? Well, let's say you know the economy is doing something it shouldn't be doing. Let's say consumer spending is declining and you need consumer spending because you need the tax revenue that comes from that. China's been doing expiration dates to try and incentivize people to spend at critical times to kind of balance the books um, at the state level. Now, whatever your thoughts on that are, good or bad, um, is at this stage, it's more of a kind of a sense of giving you an idea of what is possible with programmable money. Most other CBDCs are just uh, the idea of allowing the the sort of central reserve or the bank of england or any other kind of state authority to have a much better picture on what money's been spent where because at the moment so in the uk for example the government can only really know what money's been spent of retrospectively like they can't know in real time what money's been spent of so it makes financial planning quite hard so it has to be done in the aggregate so you could actually have energy-related money that is can only be spent um, uh, for the relief of increasing energy bills. Exactly that. And so then what could happen is is then the money could only be spent on energy rather than, you know, if you looked at during the COVID era, you know, in the US and other places, governments issued checks to help people kind of manage their cost of living. How much of that money was used for what the government wanted it to be spent? Don't know. Um is that a good or bad thing? You know, debate. It's you know, another debate about you know civil liberties and stuff. But I think in this case, what is you know, interesting is if you're sat in Downing Street or the White House at the moment, and you're fla- you're facing inflation at rates never been seen before in our generation, and there are ways of incentivizing people to use handouts or bailouts or whatever language you want to use to help them with specific things. It's quite a tempting idea. Very easy to write it into the code. Web3 is now also going to change social media. Uh, And uh, I'd be interested in your views on what we can anticipate in Web3-driven social. Yeah, great question. So I think the the, the fundamental thing that will change with Web3 social media is ownership. Um, So... If you look at the, the board ape um, NFT collection, for example, they've built a kind of their own metaverse, which is the idea of, hey, you can go and hang out with your avatar and, that you own and interact with the people and buy land and do interesting and weird things like that. Social media is sort of being is sort of following into that and saying, you know, in the current world, all the IP that you generate on Instagram or YouTube is essentially owned by the company that allows you to do it, which, as we've seen lots and lots of times with court cases where people have felt their IP being used in a, in a, against their wishes or against their permission because you've signed um, terms and conditions that allow the company to own your IP or to kick you off or to ban you or to do all those other things. Web3 and social media is moving towards a world where not only does ownership become more of a thing, but also the community gets more power to decide. So what I mean by that is, let's say you're in a, on a social media platform and someone's behaving as in a way the community doesn't like. There is a, There are versions of these social media platforms that say to the community, hey, if enough of you vote, you know, we, we put a proposal forward in a DAO or another structure and say, is this person good or bad for the community? And the community says, bad. The community can kick them out. And it means that the, the creators of the, the network aren't always kind of pulled in 
to sort of adjudicate and decide whether someone's being good or bad. It's a self-healing community that monitors itself. Yeah, because if you look at, you know, my background in journalism um, kind of enters into this discussion. So Facebook, for example, is constantly um, being asked to kick out you know, users and pages and companies. But it forces Facebook into a really difficult position from a legal perspective. And that is, if Facebook starts editorializing its platform, which it does to a certain extent, but if it does, under US law, it becomes a different type of company. It becomes a media company and therefore can be sued by other people. Whereas at the moment, it's a technology company and it wants to be largely ambivalent to you know bad actors in the community because of legal reasons. In Web3, there can be a world where a project or a company builds a world, maintains the world, but the people who live in it and use it can decide... Who else lives in it and uses it, rather than always having to come back to the creator and say, hey, this person needs to be kicked out. Matt, you're a journalist and you write a daily newsletter called The Brink. How do you pull out of the uh, flurry of uh, updates what to write about? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for me, the, the most interesting part of, of, of Web3 and crypto is, is how it interacts with people. I think it's... It's very, very easy to get lost in the kind of inside baseball stuff of, you know, protocol upgrades and, you know, developer spats and rows. But I think the more more interesting stuff is how this world is emerging from this sort of primordial coding soup and starting to change people's lives. So anything from how people are using it to raise money for worthy causes to how people are using it to you know, challenge the status quo in industries like social media or elsewhere. So just good old-fashioned human interest stories. So uh, one I wrote about recently was uh, Duquan, who was the founder of the ill-fated Lunar Network. You know, his, he's recently re-emerged uh, and done an interview uh, with a new media company talking about how he feels about the idea of presiding over the collapse of a $40 billion stablecoin. And that's really interesting because... While it's very easy to go, well, the code's broken or something's broken, fundamentally there's a person behind that who's written about it or has written it and released it into the world and believed that that was going to change that part of the world as as he knew it. I think that's, for me, the most interesting part is like, who are these people and why did they make the choices they made? And have you been seeing um, a change in attitude this year because where we are now in terms of Crypto and pricing is a far, far, far away from where we started the year. So how are the, the, the people you're interviewing responding? What are the sentiments and what are the biggest challenges being faced? It's important to break this question up into groups. So the first group would be, let's say, the money people. Um, these are the people who invested large amounts of money into protocols, into, into projects. What I'm seeing is those people are still deeply vested in this space and continue to put money into this space, even though the rest of the world is sort of staring down the brink of a very long and pronounced recession. So those guys really do see the value in the in the the worthiness of this technology. Then you have the kind of communities that evolve around these projects and, and their attitude is sort of being kind of split down the middle between people who have got into this space for purely speculative reasons and people have got into this space largely because they wanted to find an alternative to what else was out there on the internet so by that i mean if you're a 
a social media user and you're you're using Instagram, for example, and you don't like the algorithm and how it serves content to you, there are now communities and projects building up building alternatives to that. And there's a real split between the speculators and the kind of devotees, which is the speculators are saying, well, I can't get rich anymore. And I'd say that's probably a good thing because it shouldn't just be the whole point of you know, the work that I do and the work that the foundation does isn't just to help lots of people make money. It's to help lots of people you know, take back control. I know that's a very politicized thing to say, but like we're in a world where a lot of our online world is controlled and maintained by projects and actors that we don't know much about. So the crypto space at the moment is kind of going through this sort of inflection point where the people who are very committed to the, the grander ideas of the space are still very much involved, still very much seeing this time as a place to kind of put your head down and get building. And then the more kind of frothy speculator types are kind of leaving. And that's not a bad thing because I think, you know, the real work tends to happen in the kind of quieter times. If you remember the last crypto winter, which I did, um, that was when, you know, we saw a lot of projects explode, a lot of projects get sued, and a lot of projects face criminal charges by regulators. But then a lot of the projects that are now bubbling up in terms of market cap are really the ones that were built and formed during that winter. Yeah, that winter. Nier was built during the last winter. You know, Solana and lots of other projects emerged at the same time. So there's a kind of broad feeling of, yes, it's it's tough out there financially, but actually if you're invested in this space for the right ideas, it's a great time to be there. Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast. Speaking to the people making waves in finance, fintech, crypto, Web3 and beyond. End of year uh, 2022. How are you going to evaluate whether or not you've been successful in your role? Um, I think for me, success is can I and my team tell effective stories to help people understand the value of the space. You know, we've got lots of metrics to show that the, the, the near protocol and near community has exploded over the last eight months, which is incredible. But for me, I think the more important question is, have we been able to convey a, a much grander idea, which is why? Why does this space exist? Yes, the space exists to many people as a speculative tool to make money. But I think there's a bigger idea that sits behind all this and I think success for me would be can I convince somebody that this is more than just a frothy way of buying pictures and selling them and a way of organizing people and ideas and ownership in ways that have never been done before and ways that hopefully empower people who have historically been disempowered to have a bigger slice of the pie. So um, I love digitization because our recording will be kept for a thousand years. And listeners in a hundred years, what are the pivot points we're seeing today that really will create that future that uh, you're trying to create? What are the things that are happening right now? Great question. So I, I think the first is the geographical change in how technology has been rolled out in Web3. So what I mean by that is historically, Silicon Valley... London, big cities in Europe and Asia have historically been the epicenters of technological change. And then what happens is, is that change spreads from those places to the countries that they sit in and then the regions that they sit in and then slowly the rest of the world. What we're seeing in crypto and Web3 is that actually 
the part of that is true, but also parts of it has emerged in areas that have historically been overlooked by a technological innovation. So, for example, the Near Foundation set up a, a regional hub in Kenya this year because we saw such huge growth and appetite for knowledge in that region but a lack of resources, lack of access to funding um, and mentorship that has historically not been interested in that region, we put it there. Uh, we've seen the same thing in Southeast Asia. Indonesia is one of the most vibrant uh, places for crypto. And if you look at sort of the, the crypto adoption figures more broadly, i.e. which countries have the highest adoption, it's Turkey, it's Brazil, it's Indonesia. They're places where historically technology has been late to arrive. And so the big I think the big pivot point here is that places that normally had to wait in line for innovation to arrive have kind of leapfrogged that queue and go, no, we want this here first. Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the telephone, you went from countries that barely had dial uh, landlines and next thing they're on 5G. So you're seeing a leapfrogging uh, born out of the desire of the community to have tools that work today. So many of the countries you mentioned may be underbanked or uh, not have the uh, it's infrastructure in place. So this really is a, a big leapfrog again. It, it, absolutely, and, and we've seen this before. So when I, in my you know, formative years as a journalist, I remember doing a lot of work on innovation in Africa. Um, and what you saw was that you know, telecom services like cell phone services were being used in far more sophisticated ways there than they were being used in Europe. So, for example, I remember doing an article on how farmers were getting live price feeds for crops every day on their cell phones so that when they went to market, they'll be able to know what the right price was so they could avoid being ripped off or all that kind of thing. So, and they'd, But then if you looked at sort of PC adoption, it was incredibly low. So they so what we're seeing with Web3 is a kind of accelerated version of that where adoption is not waiting for server farms, not waiting for the broadband fiber to go into the ground to be able to do this work. They're kind of just going, no, we just need an internet connection and we can take part in this, this sort of great tech revolution. And are you seeing any solutions coming out on near that blow your mind that uh, really make these kind of giant leaps? Wow, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I for me, like climate change is a, is a big topic, personal topic of mine. And what what we're seeing with projects like Open Forest Protocol and um, Kyoto Protocol and places like that is they've kind of taken a look at the way that world works. So you know, carbon capture, reforestation, all that kind of stuff. There's been a lot of discussion this year about how that system is broken. Whereas what these projects have done, a lot of the people who run these projects have come from those worlds. So they're sort of experts in their fields and they've looked at the sort of the, the tech stack as it was and gone, this doesn't work. And they've come over to Web3 and have gone, oh, actually, there's a, there's a much easier way of doing this. So, you know, an open forest protocol has people in the fields standing next to forests, measuring forests, and then recording all that data on the blockchain. So that means that the, the data is immutable, it's not hackable, you can't fudge it if you want to get people to buy more of it. And they're also using satellite imagery to kind of verify whether the data is true or not. Whereas in the kind of this world at the moment, on the ground measurement is horrifically prone to corruption and manipulation because there are a lot of very powerful people who want to portray an image of reforestation and preservation, but actually don't want to do it. So I think for me, Climate solutions coming out of this space have been 
mind blowing in terms of the, like the sophistication and the thought that's gone behind them. Well, Matt Hussey, thank you so much for joining us here on Waves in the Finiverse. It's been great to speak with you today and we appreciate the insights. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening.